0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done nearly 500 of them now. And if you would like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This show is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. I say listeners because it also exists as an audio podcast. So if you appreciate it and would like to support it, uh, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site. And there's also a page about other ways to donate if you don't like dealing with PayPal. My guest today is the Reverend Peter Panagore. Peter has a Masters of Divinity from Yale University. Um, He had two near-death experiences which transformed his life. And we're going to be talking about those. And, but also about some other stuff, because his life was already sprinkled with interesting spiritual experiences before he died. The first of his near-death experiences was while climbing, ice climbing, near Banff, Alberta in 1980. And the second was in 2015, when a congenital heart condition caused him to have a heart attack. Um, he's been practicing zazen and Centering Prayer, and also Kundalini and Kriya Yoga for 40 years. For 15 years, he hosted a daily TV broadcast reaching 30 million views a year across Maine and New Hampshire, in which or on which he told inspirational devotional stories. Before that, he served as a United Church of Christ minister and pastor in Maine and Connecticut and published 150 sermons and many prayers. His second book is called, I have a picture of it, I'll flash on the screen here, Heaven is Beautiful, How Dying Taught Me That Death Is Just the Beginning and it's an audible bestseller, and his first book, Two Minutes for God, is a uh, best-selling inspirational devotional book. Peter runs a global spiritual counseling service and travels as an inspirational speaker and teacher. So, just before we start, since we're going to be talking about NDEs, or near-death experiences, today, I just want to take a minute to explain why I consider these experiences relevant to the theme of spiritual awakening and thus to the theme of this show. I just wrote out a little paragraph here of some thoughts I want to express. I consider spirituality to be not just the aspiration to know the ultimate reality or one's true nature, although it very much is that, but also to understand the subtle mechanics of creation, at least those relevant to the process of spiritual awakening. Such knowledge safeguards one's path and may improve one's effectiveness as a teacher, should one become a teacher. For instance, some spiritual teachers reason that there is no personal self, ultimately, and that, therefore, life after death and reincarnation can't exist because there's no one to survive physical death or to reincarnate. Uh, If they teach such views to their students, how will it influence their spiritual journey? What if they're 80 years old or dying of cancer and feel they're far from spiritual awakening? Will they feel that their life has been in vain and they will die and cease to exist without having attained life's highest goal? Contrast this with someone who realizes that the death of the body is just a milestone on a long journey and that whatever spiritual progress they have made in this life will carry on, either into the next life, if, they, you know, if that's the way it works, or whatever, it'll carry on. So anyway, I just wanted to express that thought, and um, maybe as a start, I could get Peter's response to those thoughts.
1: Well, I learned when I was dead that I continue on. So I have no problem whatsoever if somebody's teaching the other thing because from my point of view, they're going to find out when they die. And so I've never been about evangelizing because everybody's going to find out the moment that it happens to them.
0: That's true. I often think that it's kind of amusing in a way that hardcore atheists who you know are materialists are going to have a, a bit of a pleasant Surprise, hopefully pleasant. Um, when they yeah. die, they go, wait a minute. <laughs> right. He was right. <laughs> now, I how do I tell him now?
1: <laughs> right. Well, Maybe they know. Maybe yeah. they can figure that out.
0: Yeah. Like the movie Ghost, they can go find Whoopi Goldberg and uh, communicate with their friends and tell them they're still around.
1: That happens a lot, actually.
0: But visitation
1: and dreams from deceased loved ones is a frequent occurrence when I was a pastor, people started whispering to me. You know, my aunt—I saw her in the kitchen doing dishes. She looked at me, and I had this incredible feeling of of telepathic love. And I knew that all was well with her. And people don't talk about it much because it's kind of kooky, but it happens all the time.
0: Yeah, you know, um, various polls have been taken by Pew and by who's that other famous pollster in New Jersey? Um, I met him once, George uh, Gallup. George Gallup. About people having these kinds of experiences, and they're they're very common I mean extremely common, so it's a little weird that there should be any stigma about having them or about or any fear about telling others you've had them seems to me
1: well, I think that there's a reason why there's a stigma, and I think it's a biblical reason. I think it goes back to I want to say deuteronomy, but uh, I just say Hebrew scriptures there's a passage about you know, it's bad to cavort with mediums spirits all that kind of stuff so there's a prohibition that's built into the culture to distrust uh, the transcendence the direct experience of the transcendence that's mediated through pretty much through anything really i mean once the bible was zipped up and sewn shut the western church took the perspective of you know that's it no more revelation no more direct communication, and that is also true of these experiences. With so many people have about the deceased loved one coming back and communicating, all is
0: well. Yeah, although Christian iconography and and art of various kinds is full of images of mm-hmm. otherworldly things, you know, angels mm-hmm. and devils mm-hmm. and you know all, all kinds of stuff that we don't ordinarily see around us. So it's there, and, and obviously not only Christian scripture. I mean, the very birth of jesus was you know the 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 shepherds were visited by angels in the field and you know were fearful and so on told told to Mm -hmm. relax it's not it's not a bad thing that's about to happen and and there's so many stories like that in every single Mm -hmm. spiritual tradition so it's a bit of a schizophrenic attitude
1: yeah i I agree 100 percent.
0: yep anyway i guess the main point we're getting at here is there's more to life than the snap of the fingers that you know the our 70 or 80 years on earth is represented by and um and if that is true which you and i believe it is and have experienced that it is then it would be um behoove people to get to know about that it changes your whole perspective does it not
1: it completely changes your perspective because you begin to understand that the temporal nature of all reality including yourself it's all passing away and especially us i mean the cosmos is going to last another how many billions of years but each individual consciousness each person you know we get a short time here and if we begin to understand that this is just a passage through physical experience and that we had a beginning before and that we have existence after and existence before and existence after we get this little bridge and here it seems like this bridge is really long but when i was dead it was that big and it was pop, I was, oh my gosh, that's the length of my life, the wink of an
0: eye. Well, we can, when you consider the time span of, you know, geologic time or astrophysical time and so on, 13.7 billion years in, in this universe so far, as we understand, 70 years, 80 years is, is nothing. It's nothing. Yeah.
1: Humanity's existence on the planet as sapiens is nothing.
0: Yeah, they do these things where if you take the length of the universe as a 24-hour clock, you know, humanity has shown up kind of in the last seconds of the last minute on that clock. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it seems to me to be a fallacy to to think that we're the most important thing there is.
0: All right, we're going to get into a lot of things here. In fact... um, the person who recommended that we interview you said, oh, his near-death experience is just the tip of the iceberg. There's much more. So we'll get into everything we can. Um, so from from what I understand, having read much of your book and listened to some other interviews, you had a proclivity for spiritual experiences or unusual experiences, even from your childhood. Um, perhaps it would be interesting for you to recount a few of those.
1: Well, it kind of came unexpectedly. When I was maybe five or six years old, my parents had had a, another boy. I, the fourth child to be born was the baby. And at some point, he moved into my room, which upset me. And uh, now I had to share this room. I was five or six years old. And and I remember the, early on when he moved into my room. And I love my brother, okay? If you're listening, David, I love you. <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> I, just uh, I'm glad you're not in my room anymore. But otherwise... <laughs> <Right>? <laughs>
1: well it's mutual it's mutual okay <laughs> right. so my brother moved into my room and it was a it was a small room that I had, and I was sharing it suddenly with this little baby and he always went to bed before me, and I would go to, now, my new bedtime routine was to do it in the dark with my mom and she would always tuck me in and I would kiss me we'd say a little prayer, and she'd leave the door open six inches with the night on night light on the hallway, and I fell asleep like I always do and then one night, early on, when he was living in my room, and I, I, I love my brother, just to be clear, um, and I heard, Peter, Peter. And so I, I awoke to that, and as I, I sat up in bed, and I heard, Peter, Peter, but it was a voice I'd never heard before, but it was compelling to me. And I turned and I looked, and the, the room, as I looked around the room, the room was the color of tone. And it was illuminated, even though the room was was like no lights on. It was the, all this coppery color, and I I kept hearing my name called. And I got out of bed, and as I got out of bed and I put my feet on the floor, I happened to look to my left, and there I was asleep in my bed, and I, I was covered. The covers were over me, and I was sound asleep. And I stared for a while at myself, and not un- not afraid. I was in wonderment. And I kept hearing my name called, Peter, come here, Peter, come here. And so I moved forward to see, peek out the doorway, the six inches, and I didn't see anything, but I kept hearing my name. And I went to touch the door to open the door, but my hand passed through the door. And so I kept hearing my name and felt called. And so I passed through the door and I went into the hallway where the light was off because everybody was in bed asleep and the doors were all closed and I went to the edge of the stairwell and the stairs went down seven or six steps and then there was a right angle turn right angle turn, and, and a landing and on the landing there was a little baby elephant and the little baby elephant uh, was speaking to me telepathically and calling me uh, and motioning me with its trunk to come down and it was covered in indian clothing uh,
0: you know about ganesha don't you
1: i do and at the time i didn't then i was a little tiny boy and i was raised orthodox catholic uh roman catholic and greek orthodox ganesha i'd never seen an elephant so i i went down the stairs and i floated down the stairs to the elephant and when i got to the elephant it was expressing love and compassion and wisdom through its eyes its eyes were, were there were no pupils there were no irises uh, there was no white of the eye they were just black and the blackness of the eyes as i looked into them was like looking into a, a, an everlasting expanse of beauty and feeling co- love and compassion coming from this this little tiny elephant and it expressed inside me like what i felt was belovedness and in it and trust I trusted, and it said to me, "Now go down the stairs." Go, and it took its trunk and it pointed down the stairs, and I went down the stairs, floated down the stairs into the front hall. It told me, communicating to me constantly, told me inside myself, "Go through the doors." I passed through the 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 door with the curtain on it and the screen door, and and out onto the little porch and down the steps. Keep going. I went down the steps, down the walkway, out into the middle of the road, and I, I lived in a sort of like a nineteen 10 cul-de-sac so there was no traffic ever and there's a woodland behind us and i'm in the middle of the road and it says to me now look up and so i look up into the starry night sky and suddenly the starry night sky becomes eternal and i see into i see infinity i see an expanse that was i was incapable of seeing from where i was it suddenly expanded into infinity and, et- and eternity and i became frightened and i popped back into my bed so now i'm awake in my bed and i'm wide awake in my bed and i think what has happened and it's dark in my room but i'm all worked up and so i do something i'm not allowed to do except for to get up and go to the bathroom so i get up out of my bed and i open up the door and i go to the bathroom just so in case i get caught Everybody, I went to the bathroom, Mom, but the first thing I did before I went to the bathroom is look over the stairs to see if the elephant was there. The elephant wasn't there, went in the bathroom, went to the stairs, went down the stairs, crept around the house, looked in the living room, looked in the kitchen, looked in the dining room, went back upstairs, went in my sister's room, which I wasn't allowed in at all, ever, but I I went in there and I, you know, Andrea is asleep. Cynthia's asleep, I close the door, sneak to my parents' room, I listen at the door, I don't hear anything, I went over to the railing, so there was like this railing with these spindles, and I dangled my feet over, and I just stayed there for, I don't know, a long time, looking and wondering what had happened to me, because I knew something had happened to me. I must have spent an hour there, More, I did. I, I did other stuff hanging around, but I kept wondering if the elephant would come back. And then I went to bed. I got tired, went to sleep, and never told anybody about it because I, I what was I going to say? I popped out of my body and I met an elephant. Um, <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Have some more peas. Eat your peas. You had a dream <laughs> um, <laughs> there. Right. Uh, move on. I kept it to myself. And so then later that year or a year later, it's kind of fuzzy the timing of it. We had a little maple tree in my front yard and it was my tree to climb because I could get into the lower branches. It was my safe space. And uh, my brother was sleeping because he's the baby. My mother's ironing. Go outside and play, Peter. So I went outside, went into the front yard, climbed the tree and I'm sitting in the tree and I hear the same voice inside me. And I hear it from behind me and inside me, a singular voice says to me, uh, you belong to me you're mine you work for me you're mine and i was like oh okay it's god god's talking to me an angel's talking to me uh, heaven's talking to me there was no language to it there was there were no actual words and so i climbed down on the tree i went into the house and my mom's ironing the clothes and i was banned from being inside and she you know what are you doing in here Peter? Well. I have something happened okay tell me what happened don't wake the baby i tell her god an angel came to me and told me that i belonged to god and that i was going to work for god and i think i'm going to be a priest mom because you know catholic orthodox one sort of way of do this do this thing and uh, she says oh really well then you're going to need to learn You're going to be living alone for the rest of your life. You won't be a a married housewife. This is like 19, whatever, 66, okay? So my mom's ironing my dad's shirts or shorts or something for work. And you're going to need to learn to do this stuff for you. You're going to need to iron, do your laundry, sew, and clean the house. And and today you could begin by dusting because you came in. (laughs) (laughs) So I ended up starting my, and I still dust and clean, but it was the beginning of my independence and punishment for uh whenever i dis- whenever i was disobedient i always clean the house
0: so what do you make of that whole experience now well the, the elephant and the stuff that the fact that you had these experiences i mean you must have thought about them over the years what do you
1: well they were they were always an anomaly to me uh and then there were a couple of more that happened a year before i died and only in hindsight do i understand now what their meaning was but i can i can say this about about it is that I seem to have been born a mystic. It seems that there that maybe it's in my DNA, maybe it's in my my soul or some combination of these two things, but there seems to be people in the world and I I've, I've met others like me who seem to just have this happen to them. God somehow calls them and or or their soul is advanced enough or whatever that is, I don't really understand it. I just know that it's like a talent. It's like I was born with this thing and I am able to use it. That's really kind of what it is. And it's isolating because there I was, a six-year-old, and I knew that I was not my body. I didn't travel very far. I saw very deeply. But from that day forward, I was always sort of on the outside. And I think it was around that time that I started not talking much. My parents nicknamed me Silent Pete because I just didn't say I didn't say anything I, I I was kind of uh in wonderment a lot
0: yeah that's great I was gonna say I envy you I don't know, envy you but yeah. it's um kids should be supported if they have such experiences and not dismissed as kooky or crazy or overly imaginative or something like that because you know, I think you and I would agree that everyone has the capacity or the potential to um, have deeper insights. And um, a lot of times people are dismissed when they have them and then they kind of clam up. And I've interviewed a number of people who saw angels as a child or had some kind of mystical experiences and the adults just didn't get it. So they stopped talking about it and eventually lost the ability. Um, so, which is a shame.
1: I agree with you uh, that we should be more open in our society for talking about the things that we don't understand. Yeah. So my parents didn't, you know, they didn't I didn't tell them. So they didn't know, except for they, they knew, my mom knew about the angel, but then nobody knew about the the preceding experience. I kept that to myself. And why I kept it to myself? Maybe because I didn't understand it. Maybe because it seemed special to me that speaking about it would somehow lessen the experience and maybe maybe if i talked about it nobody would believe me and then i would begin to doubt myself
0: it's true i don't think they would have believed you most of them they would have just just felt, felt you had um, too much um, spaghetti sauce for dinner or something you <laughs> had a vivid dream
1: right and and it was it was unlike any other dream that i never had or had until i was in college we mentioned before, before we were on air, you mentioned Thomas Keating, the abbot from St. Joseph's Abbey and, and outside of Boston, west of Boston. I went to a Catholic high school near there, Catholic prep school, and my religion teacher, uh, my senior year, at the end of school, went to a retreat at the monastery and learned centering prayer or meditation. Came back to our class, taught us how to do it. I was adept at it from day one, and began my daily practice from that time forward. I was the only one in my class who even liked it, let alone kept at it. And I find over long practice that. It strips away, as Keating says, the false self, which allows more room for the divine to enter in. And so by the time now here it is sophomore year of college, three years later, just three years in a meditation, I'm out on the Appalachian Trail for a winter break, uh, pardon me, a March-Spring break with a, an atheist buddy of mine who's still one of my best friends because I know he's going to find out when he gets to the other side. and It's a joke between us. So anyway, we're out on the AT in Massachusetts. It's like eight inches of snow on the ground. We're, we're tenting and half-cabining. And one night we get to this half-cabin and we go to sleep. And as soon as I fall asleep... I'm plucked out from inside my body. And I'm instantaneously, it feels like, at first. And then it realized that this instantaneous experience was longer. It's both these things, long and slow at the same time. And and I felt like I could see that I was being raised up on a cable, a cord I come to understand later, out of my body, out of the cabin, above the treetop and up to the edge of the atmosphere where there seemed to be some sort of opening that I I went into another space. And, and now I'm in a bubble of containment that's made especially for me. And I'm in a, in a darkness, an impenetrable, infinite darkness that I can see with my spirit eyes because I'm my spirit body and not my physical body. And I'm wondering what's going on because I I know I'm asleep. I know I'm in my sleeping bag. I know Bob is in the half cabin. I know where my body is and I'm completely cognizant with capable mental processing. I'm thinking about all this stuff. And I'm this isn't a dream. This is this is like that time before, I'm thinking. Oh, and also I can see myself. I have two perspectives simultaneously. I'm looking out through my spirit eyes and I can see myself in this bubble. My my spirit form, and suddenly these two hands appear, and they kind of come into my bubble, and they're like this, and then they're like this, and the and one hand d- disappears, and it's holding a glass vial full of gold dust, and I hear inside myself and outside myself, without, with words, without words, I, hard to tell, and it says the voice says to me, this is my gift for you. I give it to you and my hands through no will of my own come up into a cup and this gold dust pours into a pile in my hands and the voice says this is my gift to you a breath comes now give it all away it's gone i'm awake i'm in my tent i'm pardon me i'm in the half cabin again and i'm what was that and i'm thinking about this and bobs there snoring and and then i fall asleep again and I am suddenly instantaneously taken out a second time and I'm in the same, a new bubble, but the same bubble in the same infinity only this time my spirit and I have two perspectives and my spirit is standing and suddenly I am a call. I am in and I am a column of fire. This fire is consuming to the marrow of my bones and surrounding my entire flesh, like a tower pouring through me. And I was, a. Uh, Uh, Not scared, but astounded. And the voice says to me, I will not consume you. But I felt consumed. I didn't feel burned, but the voice, I felt consumed. And the voice said, I won't consume you. And it was over. And I was awake. And I shut up. And I didn't tell Bob. And we finished the hike. And I wondered, what was this? So I spent the entire next year wondering, what is this? what does this mean? Who am I? I remember coming home. I remember coming home to to my parents' house and saying, you know, well, not telling them the truth, but there's something different about me. I'm feeling like I'm special uh, somehow, like there's something, and not special in a good way, just like special in a, a way I don't understand. And of course, my mom, God love her. Oh, Peter, you're just like everybody else. You're fine. And she's right. I am exactly like everybody else. But I also felt completely off my pins. And I didn't really understand what that was all about until I died. Can I toss in? I'm going to skip forward. After my near death experience, I was in the monastery. Keating had a novitiate master named Theophane Boyd, and he was also the guest master. And I became a disciple of his after my near death experience. And so when he retired, he went to St. Benedict's in Snowmass, Colorado which is a Catholic Trappist monastery, and, and I would visit him out there, and one night during the 3 a.m. prayer, I walk from the guest house up to the chapel, and I'm in the chapel with the monks, and they're chanting beautiful, beautiful Gregorian chant in this echoing, beautiful stone structure, and I'm just listening because I don't know the chant, and I'm listening with my eyes shut, and suddenly I feel like someone's staring at me, and I, I'm, I'm like, what is this? And I, and I look over to the corner and there's Theophane sitting in the corner. And he's staring right at me with his laser beam blue eyes. And he's a, a column of fire. There's like a column of fire coming through the floor, completely engulfing him and going right out the top of the chapel. And he's looking at me with this intent look. And none of the other monks are, they're all like eyes shutter into their prayer life. And, and, and he's, he's like communicating to me, see this, see this thing. So when I was dead, I also went through a fire. And the fire, and that's a metaphor, because there's really no way for me to explain linguistically or conceptually exactly what happened. But it felt like I went through what Catherine Genoa calls uh, the purgative fire of divine love. It felt like like i I went through my life review was to experience all of the pain i'd given everyone in my entire life you're getting ahead I'm of the, yourself here i am let's stop <laughs> <Okay>. let's stop <laughs> come yeah. back. all right there's a cliffhanger we'll come back next week
0: yeah li- <laughs> there's literally a cliffhanger actually we're going to be getting into it i find this stuff fascinating and um i i was reading near-death experience books way back you know betty Eady and danny and brinkley and uh You know, James on Prague and all that stuff. So I love the topic, and we are going to be getting into your near-death experiences. So far, we've been talking about sort of experiences that happen during sleep, which uh, maybe we could just embellish that a little bit. I think that sleep is a very innocent time. You're not in control, you're, not, you're, you're totally relaxed, and probably you're more susceptible to having a deeper or, or transcendental or out-of-body or some kind of experience like that than you would be in the waking state. So there's that. That's one thing. And a lot of people report having had cool experiences like that during sleep. I recently chatted with some people, and we were comparing notes, and several people said when they were little kids and had a high fever, they had far-out experiences, a, a feeling of sort of infinite vastness and infinite tininess and infinite heaviness and infinite lightness, and they just sat there amazed by this. You see, you're nodding your head. Did you have something like that too when you had a fever? When
1: I had a fever as a kid, I had kind of the – it just felt crazy to me. I didn't get that kind of out-of-body experience at that point. But the three dreams I had – were unlike any other dreams I'd ever had before, or unlike uh, any other type of dream. I've had other experiences in the in dream state, but not. A, it's not a lucid dream, and it's not uh, out of like a, I wasn't in control. It wasn't like I was astrally projecting myself out of my own body. I was taken, and um, the, the the second two times, and the first time I was invited. I was welcomed. So although I had a choice the first time, it seems to me, but I also felt like I was compelled by the attractiveness of this beautiful voice of compassion that was calling me that seemed irresistible to me. Like, I, like although I had a choice, I had no other thought than to go.
0: Yeah. So what do you make of these elephants and voices and different things that have sort of intervened? Do you feel that, that there actually are some sort of subtle or angelic or astral or celestial beings that are interested in our welfare and that check in from time to time and perhaps give us an experience and imbue us with some kind of knowledge that we might not have had, like guardian angel kind of thing. You feel like that's going on?
1: I think that happens a lot. I think there's a lot of anecdotal information out there That's uh, as more and more people are talking about it and have the courage to talk about it, we're discovering that there's more truth to that. We can't prove that empirically. There's no science that we can show that that's the case. But I have a lawyer friend who says, an accumulation of anecdote is evidence. Mm -hmm. So you get enough of that, then you can convict a person of crime in a court of law. So, yeah, I think it's real. I think that people experience the divine in lots of different ways. I think that the oneness of being speaks through many voices and that the individual hears the voice that they're capable and comfortable of hearing. And so there are stories of people seeing a physical manifestation of angels with wings. There are people like me when I was a boy hearing the voice of God, for lack of any other word, speaking as if through a microphone to a speaker behind my my head and inside my soul, but the speaker and the microphone seem to have some sort of entity-ness to them. So so when an when an angelic being comes to speak to help us or guide us, it seems always to me to actually be the oneness itself manifest in a form that we're capable of comprehending. Mm-hmm. Does that yeah. does that kind of make sense? Yeah, totally. Um, I've heard other
0: people say that you know I don't know how they would know this, but that when we die, maybe initially we go to a, a sort of a realm that makes sense in terms of the tradition that we've grown up in that has been explained to us, you know, so that we're not startled by something radically different than our expectation, and um, but but it's sort of customized to the culture or to even to the individuality of the person.
1: I, I think that that may be true, and if I if I had a, a... million, I would do a global-sized near-death experience study on that particular subject and find out if in India and in Malaysia and in Australia and in Zimbabwe that that holds true. Because I don't think that we have enough. I think that we can gather that anecdotal evidence and make some sort of uh, data analysis to see what the percentage of experience is like that is it a hundred percent is it eighty percent even if it's sixty percent that has a significant um uh cultural that the, the cultural social context of the experience uh matters because but there are jews who see jesus and buddhists who see uh, jesus or, or christians who see Krishna Buddha. And somebody Krishna, Buddha, yeah. right right you know <laughs> so and i saw baby elephant when that was when i was <laughs> dead in you know what did I know about yeah. India? Nothing you know
0: well, you can't always get what you want, but you get what you need right right, but what I
1: did get was was the communication of compassion um and and that the 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 containment unit, the little baby elephant angelic form, whatever you Ganesh, whatever you want to say was a, I, I could perceive that it was not the thing itself, and that inside the eyes of this. When I looked into the eyes of this baby elephant, it wasn't like looking into your eyes. I could see the I could see the expanse of the universe, um, and it it was unlike when I looked outside when I was outside and saw the saw the without the sort of kind of saw it raw without the containment of compassion. I just saw infinity, and it was awful. And that that word full of uh, full of fear and wonderment at the same time wasn't negative, wasn't bad. It was just overwhelming and i was shocked there's a lot of angels that come to people there's a lot of deceased loved ones that come to people and if in our culture and you're helping a lot rick by having this these, doing these sorts of 500 video interviews you're helping to to allow people like me to speak these things to take the risk because i'm i was pretty much a rational person even though i was a mystic i'm really into science i like evidence well it gives the opportunity for those who are whose circumstances don't allow them to speak as loudly as they would like to to be able to do that
0: that was one of my initial motivations with this show was i was i'm in a town where you know, a lot of people have been meditating for a long time, and people were having spiritual awakenings, and uh, their friends would be very skeptical just, because they weren't having them. Because this guy looks like an ordinary guy, how could he be having anything special? So one of the, one of the motivations was to showcase various people's experience, so that people could see that their peers were having these things, and if not, if their peers could have them, why not they? You know, to increase their confidence,
1: maybe. Right, and and so I, I seem to be a natural born mystic. But but I think that everyone has the capacity for mysticism. Everyone is connected innately and interiorly, directly to the divine. That's it's and even our souls and our spirits. You know, if there's a, like a if you're going to uh, give it some sort of uh, physicality, you get, you, get your physical body metaphor, spiritual body, like that. People astral project in soul, which is this this, this non being consciousness that has no physical form. I mean, even the the non physical consciousness that has no physical form has, uh, is is made of a, like a photon of of divine light. At its very center core of being, everybody is exactly the same, made of the same substance. And therefore, if because we're all the same, if we pick up tools that work with our biology, meditation being the primary one, and but there's there's you know you can qigong or or, you know, any form of focus, any form of mental focus that isn't focused on the self with a little S. Is, I'm not talking about self-realization about Peter. It's self-realization about what you know, Emerson called the Oversoul. The big capital S. Self-realization is, it's like Vipassana Yoga, where it's really not about you. It's about connecting to the Atman. And anybody can do that if they set their mind to.
0: Sure. Well, if the divine is what it's supposed to be, which is omnipresent and Mm all-pervading, then it pervades all of us. It pervades a a cat or a rock or anything else. But human beings have a more sophisticated nervous system than cats and rocks and have the capacity to use that nervous system as an exploratory tool in order to tap into that divine consciousness and begin to live it and experience it.
1: Exactly so. We are nature with a capacity for self-reflection. And we spoke early on about human beings, sapiens being on the planet 100,000 years, not very long, but here we are 100,000 years into it and we discover this about ourselves, that we can access the divine directly if we look within. And it's on the inside that you find the outside. That's really how it works best.
0: Okay, so let's move on to your near-death experience. You were a big outdoorsman. You were really into skiing and hiking and climbing and all that stuff all year round, summer and winter. And so you went on this adventure up in Canada and that uh, you take it from there.
1: Yeah, so I was, I was a college student on exchange, uh, hiding out from my family back East. Sister had vanished when I was a kid. I ran away from home, broke my mother's heart, and I was escaping from a family emotions And so I didn't want to go home to Boston for vacation. I found a buddy, I found a fellow who would go snow caving, backcountry skiing and ice climbing. It was his trip. I joined his trip. Like you said, I've been an outdoorsman. It wasn't the first winter trip I'd been on. So after our snow caving tour, which lasted about eight days and it was fantastic, we did this one day of ice climbing. And Tim, I'd been a technical climber, rocks, uh, but never been on ice. Tim was a lead climber on ice and on rock, and he had all the gear. I had most of the gear winter-wise, and I borrowed what I couldn't find. So I borrowed crampons. I had boots, climbing boots that I bought. And I crampons, crampons are these
0: spiky things that you put Spice, on your boots.
1: Spiky things. Actually, I rented those from the outing club. Yeah, they strap onto your boots. That's a good description. And they've got two. They've got points that look like ha things that come out and then points that go down so you can kick your kick the fangs that are here into the ice and the points that go down you kind of lean back a little bit and you get four points of contact on the ice mm-hmm. so you can toe you can toe grip, toe grip onto the ice i got an ice axe and i couldn't find another one so i had one ice axe you need two i found I'm showing an showing ice a picture
0: of an ice axe on the screen right now and the second thing was an ice hammer i'm showing an a picture ice of that hammer. on the screen right now
1: they both have wrist straps on them. One, the hammer has the strap on the bottom, and the ice axe has a strap partway up. And you can, you can put your hand through the strap and slide like a bead down, at least the one I had, and hang. You can set the axe and then let go and hang and rest. But the hammer, you have to hang on to this thing because it's really not useful. It's, not, its primary use is not climbing. It's putting in screws and taking screws out and chipping ice away but you could use it in a pinch Tim and i decided we wanted to do this climb i didn't have enough ice axe i only had the one but we did it anyway and that was our fatal choice because it's it's a world famous climb it's just between jasper and Banff in western canada and there were maybe eight or ten or twelve other teams there that day climbing and We made our ascent, but because I had a hammer and an axe, it slowed our ascent down significantly so that we reached the top of the climb, maybe 500 feet, uh, something like that, at dusk. And all the other teams had already descended and were leaving. I watched them walk out. They weren't even on the ice anymore by the time we got to the top. And so at that point, we knew that we were in trouble because the sun was setting and the temperature was dropping fast. And we had eaten up our food. It was a day climb. We didn't bring up a stove or a tent or any of that kind of stuff. And we were soaked because it's a wet sport. And Tim hauled up the rope pretty fast and it became a 300-foot knot. And hypothermia set in. Uh, Got clattering jaw, like in a cartoon where they, you know, that's a real thing. I had to get the rope untied, so I took off my gloves and began getting frostbite pretty immediately because I had to untangle the rope, as we talked about what we would do, we knew that our situation was desperate.
0: we were just hanging there, right? Or, or well, on some kind little of, ledge or something?
1: We're sitting on we're sitting on a ledge. Thanks. Yeah, we were sitting on a ledge. Our legs are dangling over it. There's maybe about 10 or 15 feet behind us. There's a wall that goes up. You know, the mountain keeps going. You know, we're only 500 feet up. The thing is 10,000 feet high or whatever it was. I don't remember. I don't know the height. It's probably 5,000. But... Behind us, maybe ten feet is this wall, and we got hypothermia, it was starting to set in I was in the, I was on the national ski patrol at Bridger Bowl. I'd been on the ski patrol since I was a freshman in high school and not at Bridger Bowl, but elsewhere and you know I, I was trained it was a first responder ski patrol guy. I was observing to Tim that we had hypothermia and that we were getting frostbite, and so we decided that we were going to die there if we stayed we we might die if we've tried to get off. We talked about snuggling up against the cliff and kind of you know canoodling for warmth, but decided that both of our core temperatures were so low that when we were wet and we were shivering and shaking, we were never gonna get warm. If we did that, we were gonna die. And so the only choice we had was to try to get off the cliff. The sun had set, uh, the moon had not risen at this point. There was a bazillion stars of every color imaginable filling the sky. So there was some light, kind of black and white, Enough light to see by, and Tim and I. Tim roped up. We took the same rope, and he he roped in front of me. I roped behind him, maybe ten or fifteen feet. Put on our gear, and in the dark, the semi light, traverse to the first rappel.
0: And a rappel is a thing where you can lower yourself down on a rope, right?
1: Yes, exactly. So we have. I should say that we have harnesses on, and the harnesses are around our waists, and it's what the climbing rope wove through a connecting place so that we would be able to be safe in our climb it's the same kind of situation on a repel you throw the rope over the edge you clip in your equipment on your harness you hold the rope for friction and you can walk down walls probably lots of people have seen this kind of thing on TV so at this point we both super like trim 20 years year olds I was 21 no fat on me at all we had already eaten up all our stores of food it's I don't know what time it is now hours after sunset and we're feeling our energy levels depleting rapidly as we move and as we speak so we decide not to speak unless it's absolutely necessary to conserve whatever energy we had for our survival. We knew we knew that this was we were in serious serious trouble. And so we get to the first rappel and and this particular place had a like a spruce tree or some kind of small fir tree uh, that you you You're supposed to take a piece of nylon webbing, which is this flat tubular webbing tied in a square knot. It's a climber's thing. Wrap it around the tree, put the rope through the webbing, and throw the rope over the edge so that when you pull the rope through, when you're at the bottom, it slides. But we were already beginning to lose our cognitive capacities, and we decided that we didn't want to waste a piece of webbing that cost money. And, you know, we were poor stupid dumb college students losing our ability to think so we threw out the tree with the rope itself and tim descended down 100 150 feet whatever it was and i followed and got down most of maybe um, three quarters of the way down there's an open space and so now you have to go through kind of sliding down the rope feet aren't on the rock anymore you're just sliding down in space I get down to this platform area it's probably like 12 by 12 or something like that snow is up to my knees tim's there at this point my coordination was wrong now now i'm in a state where my lips are frozen my feet are frozen my jaw i can't really talk my lips are too hard to talk i'm not able to stand well i'm falling over in the snow we finally tim and i get our you know he's helping me up or uh, we get our act together a little bit and we go to grab the rope to pull the rope through and the rope is stuck and now it's frozen because the rope was wet and Got now caught it's on the tree caught on the tree it has rough bark and we can't get the thing we can't get it loose and both of us hanging on this thing, we just can't get it loose and our and the the night's getting colder, our situation's getting more serious every
0: minute that passes we're in more danger, and so, so you need to get the rope loose in order to attach it to a new thing, lower down, and then lower yourself down from that point correct, okay correct,
1: and we eventually there were three repels, and each one we had to use the same rope to descend down this whole length, and so we're we're in this situation where tim says i know this this they have knots hitches and bends those are three types of rope uses knots hitches and bends tim knows a hitch called a persic hitch and what it is is it hitches are friction-based knots where when you pull on it they become super tight and if you slack them they become loose and this particular hitch which he had this really super fine uh, line with us uh, it was, I don't remember how thin it was, pretty pretty skinny, nine millimeters or something like that. And if you tie it on on a rope with a big, huge loop, you can slide this thing up and slide the loop up for your foot. It's an ascender's hitch. And when you step on it, it becomes like 98% locked. So he knows this hitch, I don't know this hitch. He ties two of them, one on this side of the rope, one on the other side of the rope, makes these huge loops, steps one foot in steps the other foot in he's gonna he's gonna ascend back up because there's there's really nothing else that we can do someone has to go up and get the rope free he's the better climber he's the better rope guy and he's the leader so bravely courageously i take the climbing rope i wrap it around my waist i kind of curl up like a spindle and i lay in the snow trying to make this line these two lines as taunt as possible and tim gets on these lines and he begins to ascend back up, one leg, the other leg, and he he's climbing up. And I don't know, I'm not, I'm the way I'm lying, I can't see him. I'm, my face is kind of in the snow. And suddenly, I, I feel the rope move, and I hear him yell, "Falling!" And that fast, the rope the rope is free, and 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 I'm kind of unspinning a little bit because his weight's on the rope, and and he falls down, whatever twenty feet or something, into the snow. Half lands on me. I try to get out of the way. He's fine. But now rope is free and we coil up the rope. We're ecstatic We're right now we can move on to the next rappel. And at this point, we're on the Icefields Parkway, which is this road that runs between Banff and Jasper along the Saskatchewan River, which right next to the river is the road and right next to the road is this climb. So it's very close to the highway. And this truck comes down the highway, There's headlights, go traffic all night, pulls into the parking lot, turns to face us it's the warden because the night before we had bribed the warden into letting us spend the night in his cabin with him so we wouldn't have to set up our tent because it was after dark. We cooked him dinner, a good dinner, and we cleaned up. So he let us spend the night and we signed in the log as we went out into the wilderness to the climb the next morning. And we didn't sign out with all the other teams at sunset. So at some time in the middle of the night, he came looking for us. And so he he pulls in the parking lot and he flashes his lights. And, and now the moon's up, three-quarter moon or so. And we jump up and down and we wave our arms and, and, and he flashes the lights. And we can see him and he can see us. And we're we're heartened. We're like, oh, my God. Thank God.
0: He knows we're here. We're going to make it. We're going to make there's nothing it. he can do to help you. No. No. Because no, he, he can't climb the thing and he can't bring a helicopter in in the dark and whatnot.
1: Nope. Nope. but just enough to be known just was enough to like at least at least they know we're here so we make the next we traverse over to the next rappel and in this this rappel we're off the ice now we're on granite and there's an iron pin into the mountain with a ring on the pin and you run the the rope through the ring and you descend down this kind of craggy rocky space And off to the left of this, the mountain comes out and makes a corner and you come down another 100, 150 feet and you make this corner and you step onto a ledge around the corner. So the rope is over this way. We're over this way. And on this ledge are two iron pins with rings and harnesses, straps that are permanently there for climbers. And I clip into the the one closest to the rope and Tim's off to my left because he got there first. The warden flashes his lights. And he drives away because we're only one rappel left. We're 150 feet up. You know, at the bottom is our tent and safety. And so now, you know, my feet are, are blocks of ice. They're blocks of ice. I am, my hands are hard to move my fingers, my jaw, my lips. I'm, I'm frozen. And I take one and I have to take my gloves off to do this. I take my gloves off. I put them down. I tie a knot. With one end of the of the rope onto my harness so I don't lose it, and I put my gloves back on. I take the other end of the line called the bitter end. Ironically, I take the bitter end and I toss it out to the side with the intent to grab the line and pull it through. And I grab the line and I and it's freaking jammed. First yank, it's like it's stuck, and you know, and I like pulled it a couple times, and I'm sure there was like a cleft, and the and the rope just every time I pulled it got tighter and tighter. And, you know, Tim's aware of this and I'm aware of this. And so we discussed what to do because there was there was not much slack in the line when I tied the knot. There, was je- there might not be enough rope to get to Tim to have him pull with me. And if I take my gloves off because my fingers are frozen, what if I drop the rope? You know, the rope is secure now. We have it. If I drop it, we're definitely dead. And we dove deep into our willpower. I don't even know how to describe this. The the drive for survival was so powerful inside me that I had a singular focus to my entire will. It was life. It was like stripped down. Everything was stripped down to live. And so everything we did was driven by this will for survival. So... I kept pulling on the rope and then I then I got hot which is like last stage before sleep and I even though I knew better but I lost my one of the things that happens when your brain freezes is you really lose your you lose your ability to reason reason kind of goes away and kind of craziness sets in and so even though I knew that I wasn't actually hot that I was actually freezing I didn't really care and I unzipped my coat and got and kind of made this happen faster because that's kind of what happens. And I realized that I was not that I wasn't going to get the rope free and that I was I was going to die here. And that was just it. And so I remember like I looked out over at the beautiful sky and the and the and the mountains that I could see in the distance. And and I, I got a, I was peaceful. I was sad, but I was peaceful and I was accepting. And I thought about my parents and I thought my sister had run away and hurt my mom. And here I am. I'm dying, and they're going to lose me, and it's going to be worse for them. As bad as it's been, it's going to be worse. And then I began to fall asleep, and I would I would pull on the rope. I'd fall asleep. I'd collapse. I'd hit the ledge. I'd slide off the ledge. I'd wake up. I'd pull myself back up. I'd pull on the rope and re- repeat. I don't know how many times. And then I, I pulled myself up, and as I stood there about to pull on the rope, this very wide black circle appeared in my peripheral vision all the way around me like a fade to black on a spotlight on a stage and that comes in on the center actor and the whole place goes dark well this this spotlight was coming in on me and I couldn't see any more of the world this world outside the edge of this collapsing black circle and I remember looking this way and Looking this way and looking forward, and it got smaller and smaller and smaller really rapidly, and it was out blackness. And I thought, I was thinking, what is this? What is this thing? And when it went black, I thought, oh, it's it's gone black. And I felt myself collapse, but I thought, I'm still awake. I'm still conscious. I'm not asleep. Why am I not asleep? I should be asleep. I didn't feel myself hit the rock. Did I hit the rock? Why am I not awake? How come I can think, and as I'm thinking all these thoughts, my vision, this blackness becomes an infinite darkness, and this infinite darkness and this greatest distance from me, I see like an entity i don't can't hardly describe it to you. It's a consciousness that is independent and is in an instant of a thought from The 13.7 billion time span of the universe from the Big Bang's beginning that far away and further in the space of a thought, it rushes toward me and expands to fill my entire horizon while also being very localized and communicates to me telepathically without language, I'm taking you. And I thought, no, you're not. I don't know what you are, but you're not taking me. And I took all this willpower, this drive to survive, and strength of myself to be alive. And I put up my will against it, and it just took me—like my will was nothing. And I traveled with it. I traveled with it, and a speed of thought. And then, then I kind of was in suddenly alone in a greater darkness that was illuminated. So this this first. Fade to black was not illuminated darkness; it was just darkness. But this new place, it was darkness and illumination at the same time. And so, from here on out, I need to tell everybody: I'm I'm speaking in metaphor, I'm speaking in concept and in in words, but there are no words there, and there are no things. I was not a thing; I had no thingness. I had self-awareness as a consciousness, but I had no physicality. There was no thing there that I could conceive of as being a thing here. And I tell it in a sequence of events, but there was no sequence of events because there was no time. It wasn't like out of time. It was like all time and no time at the same time. And so I'm in this, I'm, I'm, I'm now much bigger than I am, my physical Peter. I know I'm big. I know that I've expanded. I am utterly unafraid. I'm completely calm. I'm content.
0: I feel like this is me. I feel you like... Know, Peter? Yes. Um, on this note, this would be a good chance to ask a question that just came in. It relates to what you're saying right now. From Jill Brody in Connecticut, she asks, when, you're out, when out of your body, did you ever totally dissolve beyond subject-object? She said, I have had numerous awakening events, including 360 degree views with crystal clarity, though through all these experiences, there has never been a total dissolution of viewed and viewer.
1: That is an excellent question. And my, my answer is in this particular, in my near-death experience, no, but it, it's a yes and a no. And I'll, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But in my subsequent out-of-body experiences of what the Christians called a beatific vision of union, Of union, even more so yes and no, almost disillusionment, but not, which leads me to Disolution, the Dissolution, conclu- you mean? Dissolution, yes. Not right. Dis- right. Dissolution, which leads me uh, intellectually to uh, li- reading through the literature, centuries of literature, that yes, yes, this, the divine sense of union it can lead to the obliteration obliteration of the self but it's not a negative obliteration it's a reabsorption of totality into the oneness and while i haven't experienced that to the fullness of what i just described i've had enough of that to know that i i am that other thing but in sort of a the same and less at the same time let me answer that question a little bit by continuing with near death because because that's kind of what happened and so i'm this orb of consciousness and i can see in every direction all at once i am one big eyeball i am one mind my whole physicality of my spiritual soul my consciousness is all of me all at once i'm an ear i'm a tongue I'm an eye, I'm every, I'm all of this all at one thing. And I can see in every direction at once. And I'm alone and content. And I know that I'm in eternal place. And then a portal opens. I describe it as a doorway, a gigantic doorway, 70 feet by 30 feet. But this is metaphor. It just as easily could be described as an opening, like a womb opening. But it's a tunnel. And this tunnel goes off into infinity and i look through this transparent and translucent opening and i see this tunnel and i know that i'm welcome to go through it and the first thing i do is i touch this translucent flow it's this flowing sort of shimmering translucent transparent covering and i touch it with the beingness of my soul of my consciousness and it's living It has life in it and as soon as I touch it all it's not just like life with a little l it's like living with a capital L it's the totality of all all livingness and it's flowing of all energy of all of everything and it flows into me. And as it flows into me, I hear my name called. But it's not Peter. It's like the the create. I know that I'm a creature created by Creator, in the calling of my name, which I cannot pronounce. But I know because there's no. It wasn't a word. It was a. It was a a description of my created being. I could see lots of things all at once. I could see that I was absolutely fully known. That there was nothing about Peter that was unknown. That my entire existence was fully absorbed by the all knower, I could see that that my consciousness that I was sort of riding on the top of was actually this long, long, sort of conical snake tail of my everlasting soul extending back into the moment that my name was called into beingness as a like a photon of lights like a, a wave and a particle at the same time and i was spoken into being and i had this soul form and i could see my life pass before me only it wasn't really before me it was i watched all of the suffering that i gave every single person in my entire life from their point of view times ten thousand so every it with all the pain that i'd caused intentionally and all the pain i caused unintentionally and there was more unintentional than there was intentional because you just hurt people and you don't know it but every single drop of pain that i had caused was 10,000 times more than i thought it was i didn't witness this from the outside i witnessed it from the inside of the people that i hurt i felt their feelings time 10,000 simultaneously experiencing all of my justifications or reasons for causing that pain
0: let me ask you a question here. Why should it be times 10,000 because it was so brief and it had to be magnified in order to do it all in such a short flash of time or what?
1: Maybe it seemed to me that, that it was that the pain that I caused was much more extensive than I had any idea. That was what it, it seemed to me is that is that the is, is that the very little pain that you know, say, for instance, I caused my second sister in one particular instance. I thought, ah, you know, she's okay. But really, her soul was not. Her soul was damaged by me 10,000 times the pain in the moment that she experienced it than what she experienced in life.
0: And at least that's how it appeared to me. You weren't it's, a particularly bad guy. I mean, no, I was just a pretty, ordinary, pretty nice guy by some standards, <laughs>
1: right? I wasn't a bad guy, I, I not killed anybody, I wasn't manipulating, narcissistic, sociopath, genocidal kind of I was just a guy, <laughs> yeah. and, and simultaneous to experiencing all this pain that I caused, I was also experiencing all the justifications, and I judged myself shameful. I was not just ashamed of the pain that I had caused, because now I knew that I had caused the pain. There was a bunch of other stuff going on. I also knew that all the love that I'd given away in my life was brought with me, It was part of my treasure, and all the love that was given to me was part of my treasure. And somehow this lens of love allowed me to see the infinite amount of love it was the divine and it was in comparison to the divine that i felt shame it wasn't so much just that i hurt people it was that the purity of the one the purity of perfection was not me and simultaneous to all of this i could also see the structure of humanity's sinfulness which is causing when we hurt other people what is sin it's hurting other folks that's it And, you know, we we can't really seem to to help that too much at all, actually. And it seemed to me from where this heavenly view that I had, the sins that I had committed were no worse or no better or no less or no greater than anyone else's. And that there was this equality of brokenness between all humanity and that because I could see from a heavenly view that this is just the way we're made. It's not bad. It's not good just is who we are and it's not really our fault that we're made this way it's not our fault that we're made this way it's the structure of the reality in which we live and therefore forgivable
0: one question i had when i listened to you say this in other interviews was how come the pain you had caused was such a large part of your experience without a um, counterbalancing experience of the good you had done. You, you mentioned something about love, but even there you said it's, it pales by comparison with the love of the divine. So why shouldn't you have been shown the sum total of your life, both good and bad? I don't know. I mean, why, was I, why did I see a baby
1: elephant? Why did <laughs> I, I don't know, I wasn't in control. But what what I did see so this voice of the divine, I knew that I was, I knew instantaneously, unequivocally and self, what's that word? It's, uh self-evidently that I was in the presence of the divine and that the divine would completely surrounded me, but I couldn't see the divine, but I knew the presence was there. And this voice, a non-gendered voice with no breath and no words, no language, direct communication was saying inside me simultaneously, I love you. I've always loved you, you're my beloved, I love you, I forgive you, I love you, I know you, I've always known you, I've known you since the moment of your creation, I love you, I've always loved you, and my love for you is a septillion times, a septillion times greater than anything you've ever experienced. And so, you know, all this, this love that I brought with me, this little tiny bit of treasure, this little, little, little teeny tiny bit of treasure was nothing in comparison to the immensity of the divine love, abundant storehouse of love that exists everywhere all the time, unending. And so it was my was the love that I brought with me the key that allowed me to see this? It seems to me that the love that I brought home with me allowed me to see the divine love. But that I needed to be, I describe this as the, a hell of my own making. I went through hell and the hell that i went through was the hell that was the pain that i caused other people but it was a necessary hell because i needed i needed the divine fire of purgative love to cleanse me for what happened next i had not i did not have enough room in me to be and this gets to the woman's question in connecticut to be infilled with oneness so i experienced god the divine as the oneness of being predominantly as beauty and love but but also joy and knowledge, uh, information, data processing, wisdom, glory, awe, radiance, blissfulness, wholeness, health, truth, all smushed into one thing. And that oneness entered into me. And I was infilled. I was already this large, expanded self, but I was like a balloon that was pushed even further to the point of popping, to the point of popping like if i had one more drop of oneness in filling me that i would have gone to the state of obliteration of being and that it was beautifully painful it's sort of like it's like when in pre-orgasm where pain where it's so pleasurable it's almost painful but i was so to this place of awe and absorption of of knowledge. Anything that I could want to know and did want to know was instantly downloaded into me. I had no brain in the way of my thinking. I processed information that fast. And I was beloved, utterly beloved.
0: It's interesting with all this that you're describing to contrast that with the doubt that skeptics usually air, which is that, oh, a near-death experience is just the reaction of a brain to oxygen deprivation as it's dying you know i mean how could oxygen deprivation result in experiences like this
1: (laughs) Uh, that's where Eben alexander and mary neil you know they take they take they take the lead with that and uh, but what did i know of of non-being how could i possibly understand that i'm not my physical self so what happened next was I was infilled, and I said to the voice, uh, "Am I dead?" And the voice said, "Yes, you're dead." And I said, "Well, I haven't gone through the, you know, the portal yet." And the answer was, "No, you haven't. But come, welcome, welcome." And I said, "But, but, but my parents, my parents, you know, my sisters ran away. My mom's broken. She—it's uh, ten years of suffering for her. I can't take another child." And in, in an instant of a thought, I was transported to. Uh, a, uh, I was right up next to Earth, but also far away, and I could see like Earth, like a hologram, and I could see every every single person on Earth, seven billion people, sleeping, eating, wars, violence, love making, every single human action, all at once, everybody. And everybody's covered by uh, like a veil, like everything's like this, this veil over every single thing, including the earth. And the voice says to me, in the way that I now love you, you now know I have always loved you eternally, was, is, and will be. And that my love is a trillion times, a trillion times anything you'd ever experienced and, and that I love you in particular. And my love is healing love. It's wholeness, love. It's beauty, love. And that all is well with you, was well, is well, and will be well with you eternally because of my love. And so will be everyone because my love is so vast. And then I could see my parents' faces in particular, but I could also see their suffering on their faces. And I said, Well, I got another reason. I was in this theater company. We're leaving on this national tour. I made a, 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 a promise to the director who told me uh, not to get hurt. There are no understudies. It's a big show. It's 24,000 miles, 64 shows, a year in development, university-based, big, big tour thing. And he said, don't get hurt. We can't replace it. There's no understudies. So here I am dying. I'm not hurt. I'm dead so i'm not even going to show up and i had made this promise and god made no response and i said well i still haven't gone through the door yet and the voice said no you haven't and i said well do i have to go and the voice said no i want you to come you don't have to go but i want you come home now come home and i say well being the argumentative sort troublemaking kind i say well if I go back to my life, can I come back here to this place of, di- of divine oneness of being? And the voice says, yes, you can come back because I love you. And I say, well, then I choose to live my life. And the voice says, you're not going to live your life. Boom. I'm sent back. I felt myself approach my body from the outside. Like I had no willpower over this. I had no choice over this. I, and I felt myself crushed down from this much larger self into this tiny, very uncomfortable package that was painful to be in, and like screwed back into my body. And suddenly I'm inside this physical form and I know that I'm not this thing and that I've been reduced into this this crude corporeality of mortal frame. And I don't like it when I'm in pain and I don't even know how it works sound and feeling and movement and i'm completely at loss i'm at a loss in this thing and at some point i start to like come up to the surface and and i hear this noise and it becomes the voice of tim i later learn screaming don't die don't die and he's got me and he's jiggling my body and at some point he's i'm able to stand and he gets me up and I don't even really understand what he's saying still. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, what is this place? Where am I? Who am I? What is going on here? Uh, What are thoughts? And I suddenly kind of come clear and I hear him say, you were dead. You were dead. If you died, I'm going to die. I'm standing there and at some point he convinces me to to work on the rope again. I pull the rope and on the first pull the rope comes free. He takes the rope, he puts it through the pin and the and the ring again, like I described before. He unhooks himself and he descends. I'm trying to he gets to the bottom. I'm standing up there like, what has just happened to me? But I'm also aware that I'm in trouble. And so I I clip onto the rope and I rappel down. And because the car is right across the street. And because I'm trained in first response, I'm like, we can't just get hot. He's like, let's get in the car and fire up the heater. I'm like, no, I can't do that. Let's get the tent. It's a winter tent with a chimney and a vent. We fire up the stove. We heat up the tent. We make warm water. We get in our sleeping bags. We bring our body temperatures up slowly, slowly till our feet can move and our hands can move. And when we're able to move again, then we get in the car and we blast the heat. We stay in the car for like, I don't know, an hour or something. This is now it's dawn. We move the car back over across the street to load up our gear. And the warden shows up as we're packing out our gear. And he gets out of his truck and he says to us, boys, are you the boys on the mountain last night? Yes, sir. We're, we thank you for coming and seeing us. And he said, well, I came to see if I if I needed to get the helicopter. You mentioned helicopter. To get the helicopter to get your bodies off the mountain. I'm like, oh, my God that was serious. And Tim, I didn't mention Tim's an atheist. So, you know, I can't talk to him. We actually made a rule early on in the trip, no talking about God. And I'm medita- I'm a meditator. I'm reading the Tao Te Ching. He's like, no, let's listen to jazz. So I went from there the next day. Tim drove south and we drove through the day and we get down to Calgary and uh stopped and had pizza sometime after sunset. And driving south of Calgary, we totaled the car, hit a semi, blew the car apart, spent the night in a hotel, begged our way, the Mountie begged our way into the hotel. Uh, I should also (laughs) mention, before that even happened, we got arrested and spent time in jail for speeding, bribed their way out of jail. Tim's driving this whole time. I'm exhausted. I wake up in the middle. I I told the story a little out of order there. We we drive through. with his lights behind us. I wake up. There's a Mountie, we're pulled over, we're Americans, we don't have any money, wink, wink, we've got some money, we've stashed it in our boots because we're in a foreign country, we don't have any money to pay the bill, we'll just give us the fine, we'll pay it when we get home. He's like, no way, you're coming with me, we're locking you up. We get in the Mountie's car, we, get, we drive, we get locked up, we're locked in this cage, and this some small town somewhere, And um, we decide that we're going to pay as much of the fine as we possibly can. We go into our boots. We come up with the money. We say, you know, here's the fine money. He takes the money, lets us go, drives us back to the car. We're driving south. And I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like, Tim, you're on the wrong side of the road uh he's like no i'm not i'm like yeah man you're on the wrong side of the road His, you know his headlights coming toward us and and he's like oh ho, oh, and he steers off and he he was on the wrong side of the road you okay do you need to sleep he's like no i'm good i'm good and i go to sleep and i wake up again and then we hit the semi because i wake up and i see we're on the wrong side of the road again and i'm like we're on the wrong side of the road he's like no we're not and i and i and this time i jerk the wheel i reach over i just grab the wheel and i jerk it boom and suddenly we're up you know i don't know how fast we're doing I don't know what the speed was it was on the highway and we're off to the side of the road and we're like over to the over to the side and hitting the and then we're back over here and we go past the front of the semi and now we're in slow mo and everything's flying around inside the car cassette tapes and pens it's all going really slowly and we're screaming ah! and 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 stuff is flying by my head And I see my life review this time, but only it's like a movie. I see a movie go by me. Everything, good and the bad, it goes by my eyes like a movie. And we go past the front of the semi, like right past the front end, up on our wheels and underneath the flatbed into the rear wheels and blow the car apart by hitting the rear wheels. And the front of the car is totally shredded. I'm into the front side here, looking at the, like the flatbed is like this far up against the glass, but I didn't hit it. You know, I'm bruised, I'm whiplashed. Um, we're not hurt other than that no broken bones no blood and Tim is livid he's screaming at me and i'm now like a wreck and we get out of the car and the trucker's like what are you guys doing and he's yelling at us and the mounty shows up pretty shortly thereafter and we're blocking the highway and and they got to get the traffic flowing so we push the car off the highway so traffic can get around and and then we beg our way into this hotel which is right nearby, the Mounty drives us. And uh, I'm leaving on tour in like days. And and I should tell you, it's a sign language theater. It's a sign language theater for the deaf. And I'm, I'm a practi- I was a practicing mime at the time. And I, next morning we split up. Tim is like so angry at me for ruining his car, like incredibly angry at me. And so he takes the skis and the poles. I take the axes and the rope. The crampons, we have enough money for one bus ride back to Bozeman. He gets the bus ride with the skis because I totaled his car. And I make a little sign that says Bozeman. I stand out on the side of the highway and I'm in a foreign country. I died. I don't even understand what had happened to me. I have a stutter now. Now the car wreck gives me a stutter and I'm a, a, a nervous, crazy wreck. And I'm wondering inside me. So inside me, while all this is happening on the outside, inside me, I'm still hearing the voice of God speaking to me. This soundless, voiceless voice is still coming into me, pouring my name into me like I'm, I'm overfilled with this sound like tinnitus. Only tinnitus is a gong and it's inside me gonging and, I, and it's very distracting. And the voice is calling me saying, I own you you are mine. Uh, you are my messenger. Your job is to speak me. And that's like, no effing way. I don't even understand what this is. I can't even articulate. I don't even understand it in my head. How can I possibly even do what you're saying? I'm not your guy. I'm I'm not your guy. And then I, I hitchhike back to Bozeman. Tim and I meet up. We exchange gear at some point. I go on this theater tour. We got a 15-passenger van uh, and a pickup truck with a trailer behind it. I'm supposed to be a driver of the van. I'm like, I can't freaking drive. And so I go, I take my camping gear and I and my sleeping bag and my pad, and I spend the entire 24,000 miles in the back of the pickup truck by myself. Not because I and, – and all I can think to do is meditate. Like, what, what am I going to do? I, I have no tool set for this thing, but I but meditation. And so I meditated and meditated and meditated and, and kept this thing a secret for 20 years. I went back to Boston and uh, later, find, you know, tell my, didn't tell my parents what had happened to me. And ab- about three years ago, I said, so mom and dad, you know, what did you experience from me? And they said, well, we knew that you had changed. We knew that when you came back, you were a different person. We didn't know why. We knew something had happened to you. You wouldn't tell us. I said, "Well, how was I different?" They said, "Well, you were kind. You were you were just kind all the time." And so I changed my career plans. I was an English major, but my, fa- my family had an architectural firm. My dad was the president of, and I was going into the firm like my sister, who was in graduate school right then. I was going to grad school, but in architecture. No, I. I didn't. I escaped to the monastery. I hung out with the monks. I decided that I would go to divinity school to put off the monastery for a couple of years because the monks were the only people I'd ever met who radiated light that I could see. And I saw that the first time at the monastery when my religion teacher in my last year of uh, UMass took us on retreat. And I was in front of Theophane Boyd with my class on a Zazen retreat for the weekend of silence and I could see his radiance. I could, I could see it. And I, I, it was like it was a first experience for me of seeing the light of God inside a human being be visible to me in such a way that it was perceivable with my eyes. And so I adopted him against his will as my spiritual director, kind of forced myself on him for the next fifteen or twenty years. Uh, he was eventually very accepting, but but you know, I'm just some guy coming in from the outside. I went to divinity school instead to study mysticism, which wasn't taught at Yale. But I got into Yale, and I talked the dean of admissions into creating a three year independent study for me. And utilizing university resources and bringing in other professors uh, and doing independent study, I studied the history of Western mysticism in order to create a conceptual context, a containment unit for what had happened to me to explore it. Because I I realized that I felt alone. I felt like in this time period, there was no Internet. I I didn't know about near-death experience. I, I didn't even know the name of it. There were no books out there for me. But I knew that having read enough that there were mystics and that there were mystical geniuses throughout history who'd had divine, transportive, and unitive experiences that I could learn from and maybe find a way to understand what had happened to me and go from there.
0: One thing I heard you say in several interviews was that after your near-death experience, the world seemed flat and simple. life was dead. And here you were in this beautiful place in the Canadian Rockies, but everything just looked like two-dimensional, as if black and white drab compared to the heavenly experience you had just had. Yes. I I thought about that, and maybe you would like to say something about that before I say anything more. Sure.
1: That very first morning when I was hitchhiking back, I was in this incredibly beautiful place. It was at sunup, and it was clouds, Oh, you know, a million colors. uh, And I felt crude. I felt like two-dimensional, like you described. Like this place here is flat and broken and less than, and and not by mere percentage points, by cosmological factors, like that kind of measurement. It's so reduced here and so cartoon-like. I felt like, I feel like, I'm inside a biological machine where I am outside looking in and having two perspectives at once. I know that I'm not this thing, and yet I'm stuck inside this thing that is... Let me explain it this way. The first time we had pizza in Calgary, we went into this place, and I was like, this is so broken. It's so ugly. And I I had to take this pizza... I had to put it in this and machinate it and swallow it in order to it was like it was disgusting to me. It was like um it was repellent to me and and repulsive to me that it was so so not what I know was real. I've adjusted now. That perspective, I still have that perspective, but I'm better adjusted to the world at this point. But I'm always I'm always in the experience here as an outsider. I'm always like an alien, like a stranger in a strange land. Like I can't wait to go home.
0: Yeah, that experience reminded me of a verse in the Mundaka Upanishad, which reads, um, two birds living together, each the friend of the other, perch upon the same tree. Of these two, one eats the sweet fruit of the tree, but the other simply looks on without eating. And the interpretation of that verse is that the two birds are the jiva, the individual entity, identity, and the ishwara, or the universal spirit, or God indwelling within us, and that both exist within the individual. People often speak of the um, experience of witnessing, in which they feel that they're in, they're engaged in the world, but they're not. You know, they're doing stuff, but they're not. The world exists, but it doesn't. And both of those experiences happen simultaneously without really conflicting with one another. They're just paradoxically opposite. And yet one can incorporate them within one life.
1: Exactly so. It's exactly that, that description is accurate for my life from the moment I came back. And I was pretty upset that I was sent back to this. felt like I was tricked. Yeah, you can go back, but you're not going to live your life. I'm like, and uh, but really, I, I, I come to the conclusion through decades of reflection that I was youthfully angry at at God for letting me make my own choice, <laughs> and, <yeah. laughs> and that uh, and that I chose to come back to this crude place and and live this life of. It's a dual. I live in a duality. I live I live in two places at once. I see from the outside. I see from the inside. And here, any emotional experience that I have here, joy, love, beauty, anger, pain, it's so, well, there was no anger and pain on the other side, but it's so, it's at such a small level that I can't help but compare it to the oneness of being. Everything is always compared to the oneness of being, and everything here is just so much less than.
0: But I would suggest, and you must know this, that that oneness of being or that heavenly quality can be lived in the midst of earthly experience. You know, the, the line from the Lord's Prayer, that kingdom come, thy will be done on sure. earth as it is in heaven. And that the grossness of perception that usually characterizes people's life can be refined to the point where the heavenly quality that you experience in the transcendent or that you experience in your NDE, it actually characterizes everyday living.
1: That very well may be true. My experience of that is twofold. One, that I know that through long practice of prayer and meditation and yoga that uh, and based in my near-death experience and the multiple uh, mystical experiences that I've had uh, subsequent to that, that I am a carrier of divine light, that I am a channel, I'm a lens, um, and... Th- and that the that the, the the and I, I work to make that happen. To and I think that every single human being has the capacity to open a channel to the divine heaven of light here. And that the more of us that do that, uh, the the more of heaven becomes present for everyone.
0: Sure, and two people a- can be experiencing the exact same situation, uh, sitting looking at a sunset, for instance, and one of them can experience it as this divine play you know just the they're seeing god in action and the other is depressed and miserable and the whole thing just looks drab and ugly so so much depends upon our individual orientation it it it
1: does and uh, don't don't misunderstand please that just because i feel like an alien here and that it seems drab and ugly to me that that is in any way my primary perspective One eye always sees the divine. And by one eye always seeing the divine, when I look over here, everything is less than, but that doesn't mean that it's bad. It's not a negative thing, it's an experiential reduction. And I find that my interior practices of seeking the oneness inside myself give me the stability and capacities to live a more stable life in balance in this world people say well don't you ever feel joy well yeah sure i do but it's not anywhere near comparative to the other side so it seems to me this it seems to me that the amount of the divine that i've experienced anyway on this side is always filtered and reduced through the physicality of my dna self no matter what i do even though I have a direct experience of contact with my own
0: soul constantly. True. But ultimately if all is one, there are no sides. And so oh, there's right. not not this side other side but you know you 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 read beautiful accounts by mystics of seeing the divine in a garbage pile or you know pile of cow dung or something like that, because obviously God can't be sequestered off into some transcendent realm. He he or she or it pervades everything. So I think well, the, yes. the name of the game is to get to that level of perspective.
1: Well, I I, I totally agree with you. The, the divine is transcendent and imminent at the same time, simultaneously. And And I think the saints who say that they see the divine and the dung pile, which is true, is an experience that may or may not be a continual experience in their life. You can see, because I've had those kinds of experience, where in, the, in a flash of a moment, see the totality of the divine being in the experience of great beauty or even ugliness. I worked in the homeless movement for a long time when I was at a, in grad school and after. Uh, and in the eyes of, of the most desperate, I sometimes see the light of heaven's light. But I also know that Teresa of Calcutta, Mother Teresa, had one divine experience in her entire life. that drove her actions till the day she died by serving the poor and never had another one. Whether we can live in a constant state of oneness of being where everything is beautiful in life is possible, but it's not my experience. My experience is that in individual moments of life, I can see the light of the divine in the purity of itself. And I've seen it directly in people. About three years ago, this started happening because NDE is a gift that keeps on giving. And if you practice in meditation, you remain connected to it and my goal is not only to remain connected to it it's to deepen my experience of it to become more of a lens through which the light can enter into the world not peter okay because because peter is this false self that i saw as a false self when i was dead it's just a thing i live in i saw the light of from a forehead to a nose 3 times so far and in seeing that light i see the totality of the oneness of the being i don't just see like light reflected in people's eyes or like the aura around people in particular experiences i see the oneness of self and when i see that oneness of self i see in that other person that i am no longer me and that she is no longer she and that it's god seeing god's self it's the eye of god seeing the eye of god and so so yes to what you're saying but no to living that experience in a daily way for you what so I, far for me so far but what i do experience in a daily experience is that the radiance of god i live in a very rural place on purpose i live in a rural place it's high aesthetics it's i live in a rural place because every time i step out my door i get nature bathed with the radiance of the divine that pours through every twig and stick and bug and bee and hurricane and cloud and vicious fox that takes ducks which nearly happened yesterday. Um, Even the fox, which is beautiful and intelligent. I live in this constant state of the divine's presence, inescapably so now for me. But to have the intensity of the eye of the self seeing the self, it's new for me.
0: And I imagine goal, even great saints who claim to have that sort of divine perception all the time have their peak experiences. You know, probably everybody fluctuates high and low, but always perhaps on a higher and higher baseline.
1: Yes, it's probably so. That's been my experience in that from the time I was a boy to when I was a sophomore to when I was a junior, near-death experience, and then subsequent divine beatific visions where I've been taken out of myself and brought into another heaven that have lasted d- days or hours, I come back a different person and I come back with more capacity for the presence of the light inside myself, uh, humbly so. This is not a braggadocio thing uh, because in comparison to d- divine perfection, I am a nothing. But each time I come back, I have more of the access To the other side my filter my lens my my veil the veil becomes the curtains are parted wider and wider through no doing of my own my job as i see it is to practice meditation and prayer and to seek the oneness it's the divine's job to give me the gifts of the spirit that that the divine wants me to have in order to do my job my assigned commandment (laughs) i've been commanded and i've been a bad I'm not a good soldier.
0: <laughs> i will make you do uh, peel potatoes for a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. A question came in from uh, Sebastian Lund in Trollhättan, in Sweden, which I think relates to what you're saying, or w- what we've been talking about the last few minutes. Why does God not reveal himself in an obvious manner through his creation? Why were we created indirectly through impersonal processes such as the Big Bang and Darwinian evolution as opposed to being sculpted directly by god
1: good question and the first assumption there is that human beings matter i don 't think hum- i don 't think human beings matter one single bit. I think that we're just um, we've been on this planet on the surface of this planet for a hundred thousand years we of course we evolved. Into this particular uh, form that we have, but I'm pretty sure that we're not alone in the universe, and that with this with trillions of galaxies and star systems and planets and water and and DNA and all the rest of the stuff that's out there, we're not the only ones sculpted into this form. And we're and probably billions of years before we were, others were. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that why not revealing? Because it seemed to me when I was in beatific vision, I was. Maybe now's the time to, to tell a different story. I sometimes get taken out of myself and brought into a heaven. And this is one of the things that happened. I was married probably four or five years at this point, And I told my wife, by the way, my near-death experience. I never told her about any of the other stuff. I never told anybody about it. And I never told anybody about my near-death experience till 20 years after. So I kept it all a secret. But Some things you can't keep secret. Fortunate for me in this particular experience, my wife had witnessed something that had happened two years before, right after we were married that lasted days. And so she wasn't surprised when this happened. And so at the moment of orgasm, I left through my forehead. I was taken and I I traveled at the speed of thought in my spirit self across a vast distance of the whole universe past galaxies at at an incredible rate of speed being escorted but i couldn't see who was bringing me to the very edge of the creation of the universe where where the universe is where the divine light pulses to create matter into being and and I I could see the light itself, like the divine wholeness, oneness of purity. I could see that, and I could see the darkness, which was not negative. It was simply was the was a dualistic projection of the of, of creating matter from oneness of being, a separation, a reduction, a less than. And and this perfection of the divine oneness of being that I experienced in heaven is so total that it cannot have any sort of less than in it and so for the entire universe to exist it can't be perfection it has to be imperfection and we know this because we age and we die we get wrinkles terrible things happen cancer and and star systems and the planets get swallowed with supernovas and black holes consume entire star systems and you know from the microcosm to the macrocosm it's all based in sort of imperfect matter and it, it seems to me that if the divine light presented the divine light in its total perfection anywhere in the place of matter then it would not be matter anymore it would be perfection and if it's perfection then it's not existence as we know it and so why does not god allow i think god does allow I think as much as can get through gets in and that we have a responsibility as individuals to uh, seek the one who seeks us, to pursue the pursuer. And know that in this physical corporeality of energy and matter, that this is totally temporary. And the perception that it is a long time is a false perception. In the moment of my death, I perceived that the length of my physical life was the wink of an eye that fast. That's how long 21 years was. So now I'm 60. That's how long it is, right? Three times as long, three quick flashes. And from our limited point of view here, it seems like the divine is not showing the divine. God's not showing God's self. But here's the thing. I had this long conversation with this woman and she rescues, how do I say this? People in trouble. People who are in danger. In Southeast Asia. And she's worried that her life of meditation is always set aside. Because she's always going off having to into these dangerous situations to rescue these people. When actually, even though she doesn't feel connected to the divine. Because she's not practicing her meditation. She can't find the peace that she wants. Her action of selfless giving. Of charitable love creates a treasure that she does not even know she has but i can see i can see that the the mom who is a single mom who's left a domestic violence situation who's rescued the children who's struggling every single day with bad economics and dangerous people you know ex looking for her that woman is creating love a love treasure or saving the lives of the children that she can't even perceive. And so I think that there's a, there's a lot of God showing in this world. It's just that it's masked by all the suffering here. And so the big takeaway for me from Jesus is, first of all, maybe he was a near-death experiencer. Maybe he died when he was a baby. Who knows? He talks like a near-death experiencer. That's for sure. He says... Love thy neighbor as thyself. Love God above all things. Love the oneness above all things. Seek heaven above all things. These two things. And and in the epistles, it's like uh, those who know love know God, for God is love. So if you know, if you're a human being and you're an atheist, like my buddy Bob, who was backpacking with me, who's still my friend, he loves his children And that's the treasure of his life. And so even though we can't perceive the oneness as clearly here or as easily as we'd like it to be, we see that every single time we love, every single time we give of ourselves in a selfless way for the sake of another, every time somebody loves us back, but also in the ecstasy of merging in in sex or, or loving your grandchild or any form of love whatsoever is the presence of the divine. And so instead of calling God, God, or Allah, oh, maybe a better word is love. I'm in love with love. I'm beloved by the beloved. I had this rabbi buddy, um, old man, God rest his soul. Uh, he told me that, that the word Adonai, which is translated in, from the Hebrew is Lord, L capital L-O-R-D, small lowercase, uh, capital. Uh, he says that really the translation is beloved. That's, that's what Adonai means, is beloved. And so if we, language matters, but it also, only because it's the way we communicate. So if every time we say, I love you, we think that we're talking to God, then we're seeing the divine presence.
0: Yeah. I would say as an addendum to that, and as a response to Sebastian, that who's to say that the Big Bang and Darwinian evolution are not the hand of God, you know? Maybe it's not obvious to us, but there obviously is a, is a profound intelligence in orchestrating the functioning of every little molecule uh, in creation. So from my point of view, the divine intelligence pervades everything, including all the natural processes that science uh, tells us about.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, one of uh, Some near-death experiencer said, uh, the universe seems to be made of matter, but secretly it's made of love. And it's not just our universe either. So the physicists at Smithsonian Harvard, Harvard Harvard-Smithsonian, are talking about multiverse. They're talking about, I mean, it's in the news this week about black holes potentially being portals, right? And so what we know of the existence of the universe or or how things work is very little. But if we begin to see God's presence on a daily basis and inside our own lives, inside of love... Um, maybe then we can begin to see it in the flower or in the in the bacterium or in the electron
0: yeah it 's obviously there because if you look at any of those things closely enough, you see something marvelous taking place that is obviously not random it 's not just little billiard balls crashing into each other randomly, the whole thing would fall apart in no time if that 's what what it were it 's this evolving intelligent expression even a single cell they say is more complex than a large city like Tokyo and yet and it can repair itself and replicate itself and and so on so obviously the divine is is functional in every little particle of creation but if our perception is on a more crude level we may fail to appreciate that
1: which is why prayer really matters because The more you open up the temple of your heart the more space you make in the temple of your heart the more you perceive the divine presence not only inside yourself but everywhere all the time Uh, it's kind of the way it works
0: yeah and again if god is supposed to be omnipresent then show me where he isn't you know show me some hole in the universe where that divine intelligence cannot be located if we look closely enough
1: i think one of the great things uh, that's going on right now in science and in the United States primarily, but elsewhere in the world, is the examination of the location of consciousness. What's the origin of consciousness? Is it, bio, is it DNA, biochemical? Does it originate inside my brain, or does it not? And from my perspective, I'm really glad that science is looking at that because I'm pretty sure gonna, they're going to conclude. I think that they're going to conclude in the 21st century that it's actually more like a download. Consciousness exists from outside the self. And when that becomes scientifically provable, that's going to change the paradigm of how what we think about ourselves for everybody.
0: I had a guest on named Mark Gober who wrote a book called The End to Upside-Down Thinking, and the whole conversation was about that. And a simple metaphor would be like, are the Beatles actually in the radio and if you smash the radio, did you kill the Beatles or do you just turn on another radio and same signal, you know, which is mediated through the electromagnetic field, comes through that instrument instead of the other one? I like it. <laughs> I like it. A few questions came in from guests. Let's get to these. Here's one from Michelle Romaro from Keene, New Hampshire, near you, might know you. Um, do you have an insight if what you experienced and others experience in NDEs represents what happened? when we die, or do these experiences happen to those who will return rather than actually die so that they may return with this wisdom to share with others? In other words, I guess another way of asking that is, is there a difference between almost dying and really dying? Maybe you go on to even further, you know, realms if you totally die as opposed to being in the sort of the the lobby as you were and then you come back from the lobby (laughs) into this life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know yet because I, and if I did, I wouldn't be able to tell you because I wouldn't be here. But what I can say is that there seems to be different, uh, as we talked about early on, um, or before the show, actually, we were talking about whether there's a cultural context for the experience of the near-death experience. So if I'm a Christian uh, and I see Jesus, but we know that there are Christians who see Buddha and we know that there are uh, Buddhists who see Jesus, so... Maybe the cultural context doesn't apply, but maybe there is something about the, that God speaks to us in the ways that we can comprehend. Maybe there's something about the place that near-death experiencers go to that help them bring that back. Maybe that's not, I don't think it's the end game. That's for sure. My experience of the divine was, I was in a place of non-being. There was no corporeality to it at all. You know, some people go to this place like Eden I didn't go there. I went to a place where I was pure soul and so close to oneness that one more drop would have obliterated me, which leads me to the conclusion that there is more to go. In the beatific visions that I've had, I've been compelled to understand that the deeper one goes into the divine, the further the divine recedes, and the bigger it becomes. So it's like this ever deepening... Ever widening, ever broadening journey within multiple levels of heaven, as it were, layer by layer. Swedenborg, Swedenborg, uh, this uh, Lutheran, he talks about, he talks about um, these levels that. That in each level you you think you've you've reached the highest level of heaven because it's such pure love and then and then you die in that level and you move up to the next level and you're like oh this is it and then you die in that level and you're like oh no this is it that's more likely to me
0: like the infomercial but wait there's more <laughs> but wait there's more that's right exactly I think that that's true yeah yeah. And there are a lot of traditions which tell us that sort of thing. I mean, you hear about lo- different degrees of heaven and different lokas, they they say, in the Vedic tradition and, and so on. Um, some of which you might return from to become a human being again. Others of which, you know, when you've graduated to that level, then you don't come back to lower levels. You just hang out up there and do whatever you do. Can't wait. Yeah. Want to. Don't want to come back. <laughs> Done coming back. Hmm. My if attitude is... Whatever God wills, you know. If coming back is what's best for me, or if it's how how I can best serve, great. If it's not, then fine. It's like uh, I'll just kind of go along for the ride.
1: Well, that's what I chose to do twice. Yeah. So I I keep choosing to come back, even though I say so. The second time I died,
0: <laughs> the second
1: time I died had a heart attack. I live an hour from the cath lab, an hour and a half on summer traffic and. I've been praying for my own death for 30 years. And as I'm on the gurney leaving the urgent care center to take this hour and a half ride, the doc expects I'm gonna die on the way and not come back because it's such a long drive and and I'm gonna have damage and all the rest of this stuff.
0: They couldn't helicopter you?
1: No, there's no helicopter in Maine, or at least if there is, it's new. You do have (laughs) indoor plumbing, don't you? We do, not in my studio where I am right now, but yeah. (laughs) I don't know why they didn't call a helicopter. I think there might be one, but no. That's what saved my dad. My dad got helicoptered. Same thing um, when he was my age. But I told my wife, I'm out of here. You know, I die. Here's my chance. I'm going home. And she'd expected me to do that that day. And as I was going out in the gurney, I squeezed her hand, looked her in the eye, gave her the the goodbye wink. See ya, honey. You're going (laughs) to be fine. You know, this is what I want. And then I chose to come back for the sake of love, for my granddaughter's sake, who had just been born in a bad situation. There's uh, domestics going on, and and I couldn't leave. I couldn't leave my daughter and my granddaughter without protection and without uh, my granddaughter without a male figure that she could love and be loved by. And so, so even though I say I don't want to come back, and I don't really. I will, of course, because I've done so twice already that I know of, and I'll do what I have to do.
0: Yeah, Here's a question that relates to that. This is from Connie in Bend, probably Bend, Oregon. She says, um, if we, our souls, are perfect in the heavenly realms or dimensions to begin with, then why choose to incarnate on Earth? Why choose to become imperfect, imperfect humans when we are already perfect to begin with?
1: I know. I I, I know. When I was dead, I, like... Everybody says to me, this is a learning place. You know, you come to Earth to learn. Okay, yes, I'm learning stuff. But, you know, when I was dead, I was in the best school in the universe. Anything I wanted to know, I knew instantaneously. Uh, I had knowledge that I, I had so much knowledge over there. I brought back this much of it, that much of it, it anything, everything. I, 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 Insatiable curiosity and instantaneously all knowledge was given to me why would i want to come and incarnate here into this this carnal form i don't know the answer to that one and i wish i did um but i do know that in the divine presence there's purity and love and that it's so strong in its presence that there is no imperfection in the presence of the divine i had no imperfection Why come back? I don't have a clue right now, but when I was dead, I probably did.
0: Well, I'll take a stab at it, and that is that the universe is multidimensional. Spiritual evolution, for some reason, entails being able to incorporate, being able to fully appreciate and retain the sort of vastness of wisdom that you experienced on the other side while functioning in all dimensions simultaneously, not just in the transcendent or subtle realm. So as a flesh and blood human being, having that kind of vast awareness and wisdom, uh, as perhaps Christ and Buddha and Shankara and Ramana and some of the, the great saints had, that's something more than just being able to sort of know all that when you're out of body or without a body. It's a greater achievement in a way than if you can know all that and while well, being a functioning, breathing human being. Sure. Uh, yes. I, I
1: I see that, uh, but that doesn't answer the question for the for Joe and Jane uh, Doe, who you know have to incorporate back down in here. It, it it leaves it it still leaves the the question, why incarnate in the first place? And I I wish I knew the answer to that question. Maybe it's to purify this realm maybe it's to bring more light here maybe by our, by being here by loving each other we increase the capacity of our spirituality because because when i when i was dead i really i, I understood everything i and i could i could even see in my long tail of my soul that there were other in the same way that peter was sort of this micron thin sheathing on the very top of the of my soul there were these other sort of bifurcations through the long tail of my soul that may have been other forms of existence. I can't see now where they led to, but they seem to be other, I don't know want to say incarnations, but because I can't see that now very clearly, but they were definitely part of my soul. They were definitely part of my soul and whether they were in a sequence of events, Which is kind of a strange thing for me to speak about here, because even though there's time here, if they existed as incarnations, they were in the place of timelessness as I was. Yeah. And so there's no sort of coming and going. There's only being. And it's an illusion. It's an illusion to think that I've come here from the heavenly perspective. But yet here I am in this world of suffering and woe, hopefully learning something or helping other people. And so, so the conclusion that I've reached is this. Love really is the reason. Love is the treasure, not only for individuals, but it's for all of humanity. It's the gift we give to ourselves that doesn't belong to us in the first place. It gets poured down through us, through the, uh, the storehouse of abundant love. And so it's like the divine loving the divine. Through us. And maybe there's some sort of magnification that occurs for all of us together. Maybe then we go up to the next level, and maybe what you say becomes true that they go through levels of heaven. But I think that ultimately there's only oneness of being, and all the rest of this is just kind of spending time.
0: Yeah. That question about, well, why should we incarnate if we're already perfect is like you might broaden it out to ask, well, why should the universe manifest in the first place? You know, why should God sort of sure. breathe, breathe this whole thing into existence? Why, why not just rest in Godhead and not go through the whole rigmarole? The, the Vedic answer is lila, you know, play. It's for the sake of creative expression. Um, and presumably something is gained that's more than would be. Had if one were just to if the the if the God if God were just to reside in the unmanifest state, and they they also say that this is a never-ending cycle of manifestation and then collapsing back into the absolute and then manifesting and back into the absolute, and you know this is all a little bit esoteric or metaphysical speculation, but it helps to give one a sense of what might be going on.
1: Metaphorical. I mean, in, in, in and that, that. That's that. Brahma's tongue rolling out and coming back in, and rolling yeah. out and coming back in, and and Sometimes that's sort it's of
0: related to breathing—the out breath and then the in breath, right? And may, it,
1: we have expansion of the universe that we think is true, and maybe that will collapse again and become another one. You know, we. To me, it's really interesting to talk about these things and to create language around them, so we can begin to think about them. But utterly, they don't help me in my pursuit of the oneness which is a direct non-linguistic connection that has nothing to do with my intellectual capacities for understanding any of the mythologies of uh, the globe that are used to explain the answer the questions that we have when really the the two things to me matter most is, is the pursuit of the oneness being wider open to letting the light through and loving as best as I'm able. I could show you my bookshelves are filled with books like this. And I've spent my whole life reading, reading and reading and reading in order to create a, a help myself understand. But I think ultimately what really, really matters isn't the questions we can't answer that we can only speculate on. It's how we pursue the oneness of love in our lives in, in practical ways and in arterial in, in lives, because the answer to all these questions, you will have them when you die. I had them when I was dead. I don't spend my time trying to, I don't discuss philosophy, and I'm really not interested in theology. I'm a, the, a theologian by training, and I, I'm not interested in theology. I'm interested in the divine connection. You show me, you give me a tool to help me find the oneness and of being, I'm, I'm with you. Um, if you want to talk about how many angels dance on the head of a pin, I don't really care, <laughs> um, mostly because we can't answer that kind of question.
0: Yeah. I think where you're coming from is that you, are, you have an empirical, pragmatic, scientific approach to spirituality, which is what I think spirituality should ultimately be all about. It doesn't do you any good to believe anything or to understand anything if it, if it can't be experientially validated. It's like I, I often say, um, you know, some friend tells you some restaurant is really great, the food there is fantastic. So, you know, you could starve to death believing that. You got to go in and eat, to, you know, to verify the experience that he's talking about. And that's any, any kind of spiritual experience or state of consciousness or realm or anything else is ultimately experiential, not conceptual or belief based.
1: Yes, and, and all, of the, all of the books that have been written over the thousands of years and all of these cultures are all based in individual divine experiences. Somebody, somebody had a vision of, of the breath of the divine expanding in contraction uh, in order to create the universe and wrote it down. But that writing came through the filter of the human. It came through the the brain and the training and the language and the cultural context and metaphor and symbol is the are and myth are the tools that we have to explain the inexplainable and and they're very helpful. We have there are good parts to religion, there are bad parts to religion—wars and death and and all these horrible things—but there are good parts to religion too. They create an ethic for they're supposed to create an ethic for better living for human relationship to each other. In the Middle Ages. The reason why Jews could create continental wide commerce is because of religion. Because they all followed the same ethic. Whether you met the guy in Poland who's selling you the silk um uh and and uh and you live in London. It didn't really matter if you ever met this guy because you knew that this person had the same ethic as you, you could trust this person. So there's there's practical applications also in in tool sets of prayer, but but ultimately ultimately it's about the divine individual experience and the pursuit of that, and there are adepts. there are people who are talented at this, and people who aren't, but that doesn't mean that your experience of the divine is any less. it just means you can't feel it this This whole notion that we have to you have to feel god that's very based in your physical body. A feeling is I feel a feel of warmth, okay, that's true I feel peace, that's true, I felt those things. But that's not the divine. That's a feeling of the divine. That's always a step away. Access to the divine experience can be had by anyone, I think, who pursues a
0: life of prayer. Yeah, prayer or its equivalents of various various spiritual practices. What it might boil down to ultimately is if, if this stuff and we're speaking to the choir here because everyone watching this show probably already or is oriented this way but if this stuff interests you keep your attention on it do whatever you can to you know listening reading meditating and the more you have your attention on it the stronger it will grow in your life
1: i want to make sure that uh, the audience understands that even though I, I don't think that the questions i don't think that the questions are answerable i still read the books I still read the books because they've put stuff in my head that help me understand my own experience. They give me frameworks to understand how God speaks to me. And when I, when I mention prayer, that's a very loose term uh, that has to do with anybody who's practicing some sort of single mindedness in pursuit of the divine in any form.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, you're fun to talk to. I could go on all day doing this. <laughs> we, we have for a good chunk of it, but we should probably wrap it up. So what would you like to say in closing? Actually, the things you've been saying in the last five minutes are great closing remarks, but is there anything you wanna just say in a nutshell that would bring us to a close?
1: Yes, the nutshell is love really matters. If there's any in-made access to the divine and all of humanity, or even between humanity and animals, dogs and cats and pigs and chickens, It's love. Long before religion was a factor in human existence, love was present. Love is innate to the human being. We're built that way. It's part of our survival. It's the way we pass on our genes. It's the way we create community, but it's also the access point to the divine. So if you don't have or you can't practice meditation, or you don't go to some sort of religious organization, or you 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 wish that you wish that you had a divine experience, you are having one. Every single time you love, that's where it really is. That's the center that's built in the temple of the heart. So love really matters what you give, you get to keep and take with you when you die, what you get from others, you get to take with you when you die. God is love. If you know love, you know God. And seek heaven first. Because if you seek heaven first, you polish your lens. And that's what meditation does. You're polishing your lens. You're polishing your lens. You're polishing your lens. You're creating a cleaner channel for the divine light to pass through you. And remember, it's not your light. You are not the oneness of being. You are part of the oneness of being. The light flows from the divine. And that becomes who you are. And, and that re- to understand that particular thing removes all ego. It's not my light you see. It's the divine light that is.
0: Perfect. Just a couple practical points then. What do you do that people watching this in England or Florida or someplace far away could benefit from, could connect with, aside from reading your books, which I will link to on the Batgap page? What do you mean by do? Which, oh, do you- I don't know. I mean, do you have Skype consultations with people? Do you have uh, some kind yeah, of, a, yeah. do you still have some kind of an online radio show people could listen to? Or, you know, very often people I interview have some kind of, they offer webinars, they offer retreats that people can travel to and attend, that, that kind of thing. Uh, I
1: run a global-sized counseling service for mystics. Uh, <laughs> 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 and, right. I have clients around the world, real mystics, People who have theophanies and beatific visions and God talks to them or angels come and visit them or they have out-of-body experiences, all the stuff that uh, you can't talk over coffee with in the local cafe when you're showing up for breakfast in the morning because everybody will think you're crazy. I specialize
0: in that. Sound like a deep pool of potential bad guess.
1: So I run a global counseling service. I help people reflect on their experience. I don't tell people what to think. I try to help people understand what's happened to them or what's happening to them. So I do do that, uh, I got a YouTube channel, uh love My focus right now is on my third book which uh, is going to be a lot about what we talked about today. I'm kind of coming out of the closet now about being a mystic. I've kept that a secret as well because, you know, that's a hard thing. Everybody here who's in the audience knows how hard that is to talk about. I'm only beginning to talk about it now because near-death experience, which was really hard to talk about, has become so popular globally. There's 10 million in the United States, it must be 50 millions globally because of car- science. You know, thanks to science, cardiac care yeah. and everything else, right. bringing in
0: people um, back. And people like that, bringing right. people back.
1: Yeah. exactly. Now that this is in the forefront, near-death experience is becoming more socially acceptable. I feel safer talking about mysticism. And so I'm coming out with this. I'm working, I'm, I'm working on my next book about mysticism. Mysticism um, for dummies, is it? Uh, yeah, it's like uh, <laughs> the commonality of yeah. how common this is. It's a lot yeah. more common than people think it is. If there's 10 million years in the United States, I bet there's 20 million mystics who the angel comes to visit them or whatever the manifestation is, their spirit guide comes. There's many more people like that. That I want to see break open. I want to see the cultural conversation accept not just near-death experience, but to see the spiritually transformed people who have had out-of-body experiences are more common, and that we're all part of one big club, and that there's this global movement now. There's you know 50 million say on Earth of near-death experiences, and say 100 million spiritually transformed out-of-body people. We are a cultural force. Mm. we're Jews and we're agnostics and we're Zoroastrians and we're Buddhists and we're everywhere. We're everybody. And now here we are in the 21st century with capacities of what we're doing. We're Skyping for crying out loud. Um, And on Facebook and in Twitter and people are talking now. We're finding each other. The common, ordinary people. Are finding each other. We're a global movement with a capacity for cultural influence at a time when humanity needs it the most. And the message is love.
0: That's really exciting, Peter. Um, Keep me in the loop and let me know when that book is published. I sir. maybe we'll have another one of these conversations about that.
1: I would like that very much. I've had a great time with you, Rick.
0: Yeah, me too. I've really enjoyed this and, and also the whole previous week listening to you and reading your book and stuff. So thanks. Peace. Let me just make a couple of quick concluding remarks. So I've been talking with Peter Panagor, as you know. This is an ongoing series of interviews, as you know. Check out the website, batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. Just poke around through the menus. You can sign up to be notified of things by email, or you can sign up for the audio podcast. And uh, there's some interesting little indices of past interviews and um, some other resources if you look under the other resources menu. Uh, so just explore It won't take you too long you might find it interesting and uh, thanks for listening or watching and we'll see you for the next one thanks peter
1: thanks rick thanks for having me talk to you later peace